Rock and roll doggy. Sort of a, a musical journey, really. You know? That's good. It's a musical journey. Hey, hello. Welcome to Rock and Roll Doggies. It is our podcast. We are two lifelong friends breaking down music that's been important in our lives. I'm Jason, and this is my friend Don, my friend since high school. And uh, we are two lifelong friends breaking down music that's been important in our lives. Every business is unique and has a target audience. If you own or manage a business, Circulus Digital Media can help you connect and grow your customer base with turnkey digital solutions that are nimble, offering best-in-class results, service, and support to reach a bigger customer base, allowing you to pinpoint a specific audience down to the smallest details. Get outside the city, the state, span the globe. Put Circulus Digital Media to work for you. Get started now at CirculusDigital.com. That's CirculusDigital.com. We are going through the album by album catalog of U2. Right now we're on the Unforgettable Fire, and this is side two. Side two. Don, welcome back to this episode. How you been? I'm just chomping at the bit to break down 4th of July. Now, there's no need for sarcasm because the 4th of July has every right to be, to be on this album. Um, I bet you've never seen them play this live. I saw that. <laughs> I thought I heard them playing it live, but that was just Edge tuning his guitar. <laughs> yeah. So as we go through this album, uh, we're talking to each track, our own thoughts and experiences on it. Fourth of July opens up side two of a very powerful new direction for you two, The Unforgettable Fire. It's a very uh, vague and very uh, almost uh, sketchy kind of atmospheric, textured audio kind of palette on the first side with a couple of guitar heavy songs very impressive four solid songs and then promenade lets you catch your breath so side two we're on we're on fourth of july i don't really have much to say about the fourth of july track except that i wondered when i first heard it what is this why is this you know, i don't mind it so much as i wanted to get to bad that's that's what kept right right bad. right right and if you think about it it's not this way now and I know we, we break this down into side one and two, um, and it's not as much of an issue on a cassette, but on an album where you actually have to flip the album over. In, in 1984, there were a lot of people flipping albums over to listen to this. I bought this on an album. And when I put the needle down on side two, you can believe I put it on bad. Right. I put it on that minute 30 into it, whatever that is. That's it's a strange intro for a, for, a side, for a side, really. I know. And I think it was intentional because they're like, look how unconventional unconventional we are. Look at our different direction here. Look how much this is, you know, gray and murky. Because they could have left this off. The, of they could have easily left this off the album. And then you would have had what? I mean, albums two and a half minutes shorter. And side two has four songs, two of them of which are over five minutes long. So yeah. it wasn't necessary, but they felt compelled to include this. Uh, and I think it was just basically Edge and Adam screwing around, screwing around in the studio, and Lanwa just said yeah, yeah. they just recorded it and said, "Okay, let's see just, if we can stick yeah. it here right before bad." It's kind of like that, you know. The track. <laughs> Forgive me for this, but you remember how the song? Remember on Van Halen's album, 1984, before the song "Jump," 
It had a song 1984. called 1984 that was just keyboard. It's a really and, good intro. That's a beautiful intro. I know, but it's like, that was just yeah. what stands between me and the song Jump. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It like, it's like a buildup for Jump. So, okay. We're into side two. What's next? I am honored and touched to be able to intro track seven, Bad maybe arguably the best U2 song ever. Would you agree or would you of disagree? Course. I would agree that it is arguably. Oh. I mean, I don't, I don't need to say it's number one or number five, whatever. But it's arguable. It is a powerhouse. It, it is one of the best pieces they've ever made, one of the best songs they ever put together. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this song. It is worthy. It is worthy. Where does the greatness come from? And I've been thinking about this a lot because I know how it makes me feel. I know what it brings out of me. I know what it's meant to so many people. And where does its great where does this greatness come from? It's a different sound. It's not structured like a like a pop song with a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. It's dramatic. It's morose. It's got this slowly building, unusual song structure. It's it's too long for, for, you know, for a, a radio song. It's just sketchy and vague. What the phrases and single words mean to every listener can be completely different. All the different rhyming words, you know, dislocation, separation, condemnation, all the words, all of those mean different things. And like we talked about, this could be about addiction and likely was written, you know, from direct experience of a friend who went through heroin addiction. but. It, it doesn't need to be about that to me. Tell Just me, so, so take a minute. Where does the greatness come from? You would have to ask these difficult questions. What do you want to do? Not, not dive mad? Uh, no, it's a valid question. It, it is. Why don't we do this? Why don't we listen to a little bit of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a splendid idea. I'm going to turn the lights off and raise my cell phone in the air and wave it around a little bit. And okay. We'll be good to go. I remember Jack Nicholson introing that. Here, 
here's a band that it's something to the effect of here's a band that's never had any trouble saying how they feel. <laughs> Jack, you're you're a middle aged man. This band's only had a record deal for four years. What do you know about? <laughs> uh, there's also the one of Michael Jackson. I don't believe you're bad. <laughs> Let me submit my friend Brian Adams. Shout out. He said to me recently, when you guys talk about bad, you're, you're going to talk about how the greatest version of that song is the one from Wide Awake in America, right? And I don't disagree with, with him on, on that. I mean, it's, it's, it's one that I love. I love the live version, the energy. I'd say the most famous version is probably the one from Live Aid. And I think it's the best. I don't disagree with that either. I told him, in fact, when he said that, I said, Live Aid's the best. So did Live Aid create the power and mystique of this song. For I don't, uh, it didn't for me. I'm sure it didn't for you because I latched onto this. Well, we well, already had, we knew already, yeah. but still. Uh, it rose its profile. I, I think, Great. I think, I think this song, and we can argue whether it's the best song in U2's catalog. I would challenge anyone to say that it's, it's, it's not worthy of being mentioned in the same breath as other great U2 songs. But I you think trying to bait me, you're trying to get me to take that bait, aren't you? No, I'm not. No, 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 Because no, I don't no. have any problem. No, I, I, I will put you on the mat if, if you want me to about, about what's what? a better song than this, but I'm not here. For no, that. I, no, I'm saying, I, no, I agree. I, I don't know. If there's a better song period that they've ever done. I, I'm not, I'm not so sure that there's like you're trying to, you're trying to trigger me. I feel like you're trying to trigger me into saying, no, there's a better song, but okay. What happened though at Live Aid that made it so big? It's here, here's, we can look at this in two ways. You can look at U2's performance of Bad at Live Aid as being just one of the great rock and roll performances of all time as an expression of that song. How, or you can look at this as being, the most important, now we can argue greatness, but I don't think there's any doubt this is the most important song in U2's career. Mm. And, you, and you, you, know, you can take your with or without you and do what you want to with it. But this is the song that, this is the song that really put U2, it, it, it elevated U2 up to the point of, okay, if this is what they're doing now, their next album it may be a barn burner and that's exactly what happened. It brought so many people yeah. along for the ride that maybe were kind of eh before. Talk about great moments in rock and roll history. And you don't get very far down that list before you hit live aid and this song and that 15 minutes or however long they played it. You know, this is iconic in every sense. And the, the beauty is that it was organic because we've all heard the story of how when they began to play this song, Bono left, uh, like he, he went over to the edge of the stage. The other band members couldn't see him. They're panicked. What's going on? Did he fall? And he went down and he connected with his audience and he did what he's always done since then. We know that he likes to pull someone out of the audience, you know, pull them up on stage, dance with them, connect with the audience. That was when YouTube became in a way who, who they really were going to be because they transcended the moment However it happened, they didn't play their hit song. They, they zigged when they could have zagged, okay? They could have gone ahead and played their Pride in the Name of Love four-minute song. Thank you. God bless you, okay? 
but they did this other thing that was so rock and roll. That was so rock and roll that it was organically forever embedded in, 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 in rock history. You know, that, that was the moment when they became the biggest version of themselves up to that point. It was the moment that you two either became or they were realized to be the most important band in the world. And I've said before, there are greater bands, there are more talented bands, but there's never been a more important band in the history of rock music than you two. And I don't know that, and this is the most important moment of their career at Live Aid. It is just I mean, everybody's seen it. If, if people are listening yeah. to the podcast, I'm sure they've seen it. We're not going to mm-hmm. break down the, the play-by-play on what happened, but it's... Um, yeah, for sure. It, you know, I, I watched this last week. I watched this last week, and this is what, I don't know, what, 20, what was that, 35 years now? Live Aid was 35 years old this year, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I'm still stirred by this. It's, no. still, it's still just... Words can't, it, it, it almost transcends the English language to be able to appropriately and adequately describe, mm-hmm. and capture the emotion of what that was. And it was so, as you said, it was so unscripted. That's what makes it so mm-hmm. great. It's just you two being you two. So I would say it has a lot in common with the feeling of watching Ed Sullivan's show with, uh, with Elvis coming on. And it has a lot in common with being at Woodstock and watching Jimi Hendrix and, uh, and all of these moments that we hear about legends, but I mean, it, but it uh, meant something. It meant something. And I don't want, I don't want to slight the Beatles because what the Beatles did on the Ed Sullivan show was, was a precursor to everything that came afterwards, but it, it was, you know, there were teenage girls passing out because they were, the hormones were raging. And it was all, you know, Ed Sullivan and everybody was watching. But this meant more. This meant more. What? I'm sorry. She was raging. Oh, okay. Um, Um, This meant more? Yes. I think it meant, it meant more. I think it meant more because it was, it was more important because what happened with Ed Sullivan was, that was a catapult. That was the Beatles jumping on a trampoline and flying through the air into mm-hmm. outer space and now all of a sudden they're like nothing we've ever seen mm-hmm. before this was a moment where a band was in a moment and they they came outside themselves to really show the heart of who they were on the biggest stage in the 80s everyone was watching everyone everyone except me where i was you uh, i had i recorded it i was out running around as a 16 or 17 we were on, well, on vacation or something, but okay. So I didn't get to see it till I got back and watched it on Betamax. Okay, every uh, I try to explain to my teenage son about how how everyone was watching everyone, and uh, it was just one of the iconic moments of of any music fans you know life in terms of what they've seen live as it happened, and I remember thinking he's singing he's singing lyrics from other songs by other artists. Who who does that? What is this? And I thought, he's a genius. Uh, what he was doing was linking them back, of course, to to rock Stones royalty, Velvet to, Underground, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 So, and he, you know, he did uh, he did walk. If memory serves, Walk on the Wild Side, Ruby Tuesday, 
or you know, and, uh, sympathy, did he do, I think he did sympathy, sympathy for the devil. devil. All three. Mm-hmm. Satellite of love, or is that a different song? Anyway, no, that's yeah, that's yeah. So these are all songs that he's done. I saw on a thread the other day on uh, social media that said he was the he's the uh, the original uh, he invented sampling. You know, before hip hop was into sampling actual thing. But I mean, hey, he's not the first person to pull in lyrics from another song, but he's he was the first one that I ever saw do it. And so that was also in a way that made it iconic because he was reaching back and saying, we're not better than anything that came before us. We're standing on the shoulders of the Rolling Stones and of the Velvet Underground and whatever, taking rock and roll collective forward, but only because of, of, you know, what's come before us. So I also think this was outside of him jumping off stage theatrically. He had such a great stage presence at Live Aid. Yeah. He just commanded the audience. Now, you know, with all due respect to Queen, because what what Queen did at Live Aid was incredible as well. Mm-hmm. And anybody who hasn't seen Queen at Live Aid should do themselves a favor and, and go watch, talk about stage presence, watch Freddie Mercury. Yeah, for sure. Um, but again, 35 years later, it's a song that, I'm more I, I, I'm more stirred by the Live Aid version of this than I am the studio version. Mm. And the studio version is off the charts. Mm. I, I have, in fact, I have uh, I have the MP3 of Live Aid mm. on my phone right now. Yeah. In addition to the studio cut of Bad. I also do love that one that's on um, Wide Awake in Wide America. Awake in America. That is uh, uh, a, a great version. But again, looking at the lyrics for this song. It keeps it vague, but it's enough to relate to anybody who's going through powerful emotions. I mean, just from the beginning, if you twist and turn away, <laughs> this, this is like, this is like a, who's talking here? It could be a parent talking to a child. It could be a lover talking to, a, you know, to the object of desire that rejects them. Or it could be you know, a friend that, that is having a, a, a falling out with a friend. It could be God talking to 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 a person any of these and all of these are intense scenarios that twist and turn away so descriptive if you tear yourself in two again i that breaks my heart just to say those words because that is that is what happens as i understand it with addiction with these kinds of things and you can tear yourself in two again in many different ways. And I think that's what makes this song so powerful. And I think, cause you asked me, I think what you asked me, what makes this great? And I think it's because each of us has an addiction. It may not be heroin. It may be money. It may be greed. It may be porn. It may be work. Mm-hmm. Everybody has something that they're trying to lose. And I think that's what makes the song great is it, it, it speaks to a part of us that we're trying to let go and we're trying to let go and we're trying to break away. And it's, and I think that's why the song still resonates what 30 plus 35 years after the release of the song. It's why I can go back and listen to the song now and go, man, this thought, I mean, it'll, it'll never not speak to me because there's always a part uh, a part of each and every one of us that we can't shake. And I think that's what makes the song great is that it speaks to something 
that is in every each one of us, even though it's different. Yeah, I like that. I think you're right. And the picturesque lyrics to leave this heart of clay into the night and through the rain, into the half-light. Who doesn't love that? The way he turns that phrase, into the half-light and through the flame. And then, and then of, as you mentioned before, the, where he just, uh, desperation, dislocation, separation, condemnation, revelation, in temptation, isolation, desolation. They're words that, it's, it's weird because they, 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 it flows well, but yet those words mean so much independently. Uh-huh. It fits well compositionally. Uh-huh. But, but if you break it down, all those words have so much to say. And yet they yeah. fit together so well. And each one of them could be something different on a different day to yeah. remember. So it's not just a convenient rhyme scheme that he goes through there with all the Asians. Each one of them is a powerhouse word. I remember feeling the absolute power of I'm wide awake, I'm not sleeping. And at 18 years old, you know, th- that's how I felt. I alluded to them also going through maybe a, f- a phase in their own lives as songwriters and artists where they were no longer black and white, but maybe going through a gray or transitional belief system period, something like that. Maybe I'm projecting because I was going through that. I certainly saw all of the difficulties in my life clearly and remember I, never feeling anything like the wide awake of this song. Like, Oh my God, somebody is saying exactly how I feel. I'm wide awake. I can't not see and feel all this stuff and I can't sleep and make it go away. I still remember, I don't know if it's, same, it's the same for you. I remember the moment I first heard this song. Hmm. I, I, I remember, I, I, bought, I bought the cassette at Waxworks, by the way. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah, so I, yeah. So I bought Waxworks the cassette. Waxworks on Washington Avenue by my house? No, 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 at the mall. The at mall. the mall. Okay, the it was before it was disjust. Yes, yes. yes. Still, so that's a very specific time period there when it was Waxworks in the mall and it not had not yet become disc jockey. Really? How long was it wax? Well, I don't know, but I mean, it was definitely waxworks in the mall. Right. And then yeah, it, I, 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 that's really all I remember it being. Well, you had left for Birmingham. So I, I left in '84. So coconuts. Yeah. Coconuts. <laughs> so totally. okay, so we got waxworks in the mall cassette. And um, and I remember sitting in my bedroom, and I put it on side two, and like you said, if Fourth of July. Well, this is. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't exactly Gloria, you know, and um, skip past that. And then I get to bad and I go, wow, this is, there's something here I've not felt or heard before from this band. This is, this is songwriting. I didn't think about this when I'm 16, but project back. I, this is songwriting like I've never heard before. His, his songwriting, he's so, so, so on top of his game on the song. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. He captured lightning in a bottle. Definitely. I don't know anybody who likes U2 on a serious level. It <laughs> doesn't like the song. Who, who doesn't name this as, yes. oh my God, you know. And if they don't, then, then they're unbelievers. Well, <laughs> then we, they're unbelievers. We got to. Infidels. And we're unequally yoked with them. Yes. They're, they're infidels. <laughs> infidels. Okay, this is 
Rock and Roll Doggies. I'm Jason and he's Don and we are taking a look at side two of The Unforgettable Fire from U2. Uh, Let's take a break here and when we come back, we'll dive right into the song Indian Summer Sky. Stick around. So here we are in the middle of side two. It's Rock and Roll Doggies, podcast about U2, breaking down their whole catalog. Jason here in Indianapolis, and it's uh, Sunday night right now. I'm enjoying my, uh, my cocktail, my drink, Glenn Levitt, single malt scotch. Don, you're in Durham, North Carolina, and what's your beverage this evening? Uh, I'm drinking nothing right now. Um, I just finished a water, so okay. I'm, living on, I'm living on the wild side. Don't you usually drink a Bailey's during our podcast? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, I urge you to, uh, to, to have a drink, to relax. Uh, or I could just listen to 4th of July and accomplish the same. The next track on side two is a track that I've always liked. It is Indian Summer Sky. Adam's bass. Dude, this is like a workout. I, I love the bass on this song. I love the drums. The pace is, it moves so fast. I think of it as like someone running, especially because the lyrics, like they're running through a forest. It's Blair Witch. <laughs> it's Blair Witch. It's Blair Witch. Uh, the, the wind blows through my soul. You know, that's the background vocals. They're running toward the light. The lyrics of uh, up towards the sky. This feeling of moving fast, running towards something, swimming against the tide. I've always thought this was a really kick-ass song because of the pace. Again, the the placement coming after bad, it just feels good. It feels like after bad, you need this workout. Your thoughts? It's like a, it's like a healthy injection. It's like a, it's like a Red Bull. Yeah. It's like a Red Bull after you've just been beaten around and knocked around a little bit and, um, I think this is a complimentary piece to bad, actually. Um, in a sense, it's it it's um, it has a different vibe, and that you, you know it, you're 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 being picked up after kind of being in this morose, pensive mm-hmm. state of bad. But yet, you, if you look at it, 
there are key words to hear connect to bad. So in the earth, a hole, a hole, dig deep, decide if I could, there's your, there's your first link to bad. Then you have, uh, you give yourself and then you have to flicker and to fade. Uh -huh. There's some, I, I think there's some linkage here to bad. Um, and I, and I think too, that it's, I, I think it, again, it's maybe another song about addiction. I, I, you know, again, we're, we're dealing with an album that's, that's very sketchy and, and vague and it's, it's very open to interpretation, but um, you know, we saw that there's, I think a link between wire and bad. And I think maybe there's a little bit of a link here between Indian summer sky and bad. I never maybe, noticed those similar maybe. lyrics. You're right. Those are some lyrics that are in both songs. I never noticed that before. I would be curious to know which album, which, which song was uh, recorded first. To lose along the way, the spark that set the flame. The good line. Liquor and to fade on this, the longest day. Is this, I don't know, literal interpretation, but this says to me, this is, is there questioning of their faith? Is this a, in a healthy questioning, not, not deserting the faith because we know they're believers to this day. But I mean, is this the time when I, I kind of tend to think that they went through a transitional time. Are they thinking, you know, are we losing that initial, you know, maybe young person, naive faith that we used to have to lose along the way this far. And again, if not, that's fine. It's, these are just lyrics that could mean a lot of different things to me. That's what I was going through too. So I take it as my own. I claim that. And the beautiful thing about great art, great lyrics is that it, it, it doesn't have to mean to me, what it meant the person who wrote it. What is an Indian summer sky, actually? Do we know? Well, I do know this. As you, as you can tell, I've, I've certainly done my homework. I come to you asking the questions and not providing any answers. So, But do you know do what know an Indian this. summer sky is? There is, no, there is no answer for that. I read some things. Um, everything I read speculative. And oh, again, yeah. it's hidden behind this curtain of like, well, it's this soundscape. It's this textured kind of feeling of the vibe and building the, you know, uh, there's a song by the Doors called Indian Summer. And Bono said he liked the Doors and he's compared. So, I mean, you know, Indian Summer is not a new phrase. That means it's warm in October for a couple of weeks. That, this could be just a thing where it's like Coca-Cola football radio. It just makes good imagery. This we've talked about him doing these sketches, but he sings in um, you know sometimes Bangalese, as I think Daniel Lanwise has on numerous occasions referred to it, in which he just tries to find lyrics that fit the mood of the music. Yeah, he's trying to get into the the deepest part of the melody by finding words that fit what the music is trying to convey. Yeah. So I, some of this, I think, is a play on this album, you know, maybe more so than a lot of other albums, although he, he was doing a lot on Octone Baby, too, I think. But, but maybe I think that's what he did in a sort of homecoming. Oh, come away, oh, come away. I think right, right, right. I think so. Right, I think so, too. I also love this. The lyric when, um, where is it? It's, uh, it's the verse, two rivers run too deep. Yes. The seasons change. The way he breaks up the word seasons, it's freaking genius. 
And I only recently realized this, I might have known it before, but it, it became really cool to me lately. So the way he breaks it up is two rivers run too deep the sea. Suns change and so do I. So he doesn't say two rivers run too deep. The seasons change and so do I. He says two rivers run too deep the sea. Suns yeah. change and so yeah. do I. Yeah. And that's either too clever to be cute or that's super cool. And I never got that lyric. Uh, I don't think. I thought it was uh, two rivers run too deep the sea as in the ocean. Um, so as I say, I discovered things I didn't, I didn't know before about this album. And so that to me, I like it. I like it a lot. I like the way he, he, he puts the phrases out there. And I think he's done a lot to become a uh, much more mature phrasing uh, vocalist on this album for sure. This is an album of prose really. And yeah, the, the next, the next lyric, the light that strikes the tallest trees will light a way for I. Yeah. That's, it's not light the way for me. Which I know. How American, that's, that's American English, and it's right. probably English English, but, but in terms of prose, it sounds very poetic. And yes, exactly. I think you can see that he's, he's immersed himself in, in the art of, of lyrics and poetry. That's a great example. Will light the way for I, yeah. Huh. It sounds because they made a uh, choice of saying, I'm going to say I. Right, right, yeah. right. One more thing about Indian Summer Sky. Has any song ever had a cooler ending than that song? It's got that. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, man, that, that really rocks my socks. And that brings us to Elvis Presley in America, one of the most. Again, it's a it's a really ambiguous, not just lyrically, but but sonically. It's it's a difficult song to really if, if you don't have liner notes on this, and back in the day, if you didn't have liner notes, if somebody if somebody cut this album for you and put it on a cassette, so you don't have liner notes, and this is before the days of the internet, you you really don't know but about half the lyrics in this song because it's, it's sonically, it's a very difficult pickup. It is. I got to tell you, we've been, uh, we've had a couple of scheduling issues to get this podcast recorded and, and I've, I've spent time listening, you know, maybe three weeks listening to this album. And this is the song that I could not shake. This is the one that stuck in my head. Like I was hearing it for the first time. This song stuck with me for days. And of course I heard it a million times and I, and I always liked it. I never thought it was great. It never moved me the way that it has recently. And I don't even know why. I think it's because I just, I just felt like, again, at this stage of my life, it hit me a different way. You know exactly how that feels when a song that you've known your whole life, it hits you different at age 53 than it did at age 33 or whatever. The lyrics themselves are, like you said, what is this about? I don't know, but it's about me. And the lyrics are really, really interesting because they've, they sound kind of made up in the moment. But even if they're made up and impromptu, they're pretty sophisticated. Black flash of my own love, 
Tell me, open my eyes, black flash, come through my own life, telling me to sing. I mean, it, it goes on and on through this sketch of this, this person that I, I don't know how it's related to Elvis Presley. I've read some things where it's trying to be what he was going through in his later more tragic phase of his overweight, uh, drug addicted, you know, last days. But it doesn't have to be about that. It's go ahead. It's just it's just this this the soundscape of this. Oh, we we all know also it's the slowed down backing track for a sort of homecoming. Soundscape is a is a is a really nice word to use. Isn't that great? I, yeah. I love it's using very appropriate. That, you can't use it too much because it's so pretentious. But but it is sometimes the right word. It was this backing track from a sort of homecoming that they repurposed, uh, at least in part, for this. And you can hear it's the same kind of layered sound there. But just the way it keeps coming back and saying, you know, like no one told you how, but you know. <laughs> well, the king that howls has howled. It is so obscure and... Is that an unknown. Elvis reference? I, th- I guess. Yeah, I know, right? It very well could be. So, uh, speaking of Elvis... Um, so Albert Goldman wrote a song about Elvis about, I don't mean this to be derogatory at all, but about fat Elvis, mm-hmm. about Elvis when he was very, very heavy. And it was very, I think a very jaded, maybe a critical view of Elvis during the time where he was very overweight. And if you remember, Albert Goldman also wrote a mm-hmm. song about John Lennon. I thought it was the book that he wrote. I mean, he, I'm sorry, he wrote the book. He wrote the book on, on, about John Lennon in which, in God Part Two, Bono says, um, Goldman, his type, uh, uh, like a curse. his type like a curse. So it's interesting that, that Goldman would write a song about Elvis and then write one about... about uh, Was it a so, song? Was it a song? I mean, I, I keep saying a song. I'm in a, I'm in a, it's a book. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know saying a song. Yeah, he was an author. So... Right. Yeah, and that is fascinating because uh, that thread runs through there that it's like these two icons that, that Bono feels like have been marginalized by this hack. That's a pretty strong call-out in God Part 2, you know? This is uh, like God, Elvis Presley is a little bit like God Part 1A. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's something I read. I'm going to read this. This was in the book U2 uh, by U2. Uh, and I think this is Bono speaking here. He says, the lyrics weren't really up to much because Brian, Danny, and Edge weren't very interested in lyrics. They wanted to preserve my Bengalese. Why write lyrics, they said to me. Why bother? I'm getting the feeling from this. Imagine you're Japanese. Imagine you're Italian. Imagine you're Welsh. Imagine you're from the west of Ireland. You hear it with your heart. You don't need, to, you don't need your head. And I, like an idiot, went along with it. And so I never finished great songs like Bad, classics like Pride in the Name of Love are left as simple sketches. So he doesn't even think that Bad is finished. And I've, yeah. I've, heard, him, I've heard him mention this before, in, reference these songs that were left incomplete. And I've heard him say that, and Edge in his presence was just almost flabbergasted that he could say that these songs were they that they were they were incomplete and they weren't as good as they could have been and that kind of thing so um interesting the artist is never satisfied 
I read a comment online that uh, I, I thought expressed it pretty well. The lyrics of Elvis Presley in America do not seem to make sense consciously. They actually do deep inside. It's a spontaneous expression of random thoughts and emotions. It's amazing. When I hear the song, I forget myself, where I am, the rest of the world. I feel disconnected. Mm-hmm. But it's a beautiful abstract painting, so surreal and subjective. And it has some of the purest moments ever, like, and this is great. And he says- I know where you're going with this. Go ahead. Like when he says, in your heart, but he sings it, in your heart, hopelessly, so hopelessly, I'm breaking through you and me. I mean, that is such a moment. But it, and it's, it's, it's not- that these snippets that occur in this song, and and I, I don't think I'm not totally enamored with this song, and I don't know if maybe very few people are because it's it's the epitome of abs, of, of abstraction um, sonically, but there are just snippets in this song that aren't. If you take them, and you go, well, that's not a great. I mean, there's nothing great about that one little snippet, but yeah. in this song, it just it comes. It's it just pops out is being so much more profound than if you just read that snippet on its own. Now, having said that, once you get to the end of this song, I mean, the, 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 the close here is just, I mean, the last six or eight lines of the song is just, uh, he's just on another lyrical planet. I mean, he's, 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 he's approaching the level of bad on about the last five or six lines of the song. It's just, yeah. It's so good. It's I mean, so good. gosh, bits and pieces on this floor. Mm-hmm. Don't leave out part of me that I can feel like I feel before, like it hurt now, and I see the floor. If you pick me up, bits and pieces on this floor. Good heavens. Good heavens. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Like I said, this has been a rediscovery of this song for me. That's why. I, that's one of the things I love about doing this podcast because – not only am I seeing it uh, every album in a different way than I did before, and it's probably the third different set of eyes I've had on it. First, first time, you know, first era of my life up till I was say, I don't know, 25, 30. And then, you know, middle period as a young with, you know, no, no kids or anything. So now being 53 years old, it's interesting in a different way. Like you said, this song does approach the desperation literally the, the the feeling of bad the lyrical but you know expertise and again we're dealing in a lot of there's so much ambiguity on this album but if if you want to look at this as this song to some degree is about elvis and we just linked it in with bad we know elvis had a drug problem mm. there's a link there for it, sure it's, it's, it's addiction if bad is about addiction and Elvis Presley is about Elvis. Elvis had addiction. You know, there's, it's, it's mm. kind of a linear thought process there. It's also the beginning of their fascination with Americans and the cult yes, personality. Yes, yes, yes. For cultural icons, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, Elvis Presley. Yep. Obviously that, that, that mushroomed, you know, on uh, Joshua Tree or, or Rattlin' Hom, really, the tour. Pride and, and then uh, Elvis Presley and American MLK are the most American tracks on the album. But the last two, it's almost as if they serve as a, as a lyrical springboard into the next album. Totally. Yeah. And 
I mean, you got to, I don't know whether to address this on the next podcast or not, but you come out of MLK and, and we'll go ahead and talk about that. But if you come out of MLK and then it just fades and fades and fades. And then what happens the next song that you hear from you two on a studio album is where the streets have no name fading in. So MLK fades out. It's almost as if MLK fades out and it fades right into where the streets have no name. Almost a continuation. Almost. It's like, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's an accident. And I, I'm no. embarrassed to say, I didn't realize that for years that it was like that. The song is MLK. It closes out side two and the record of unforgettable fire. This elegiac hymn like tribute to an American hero, an American legend who was uh, one of the greatest Americans in, 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 in my opinion. And that's not a, it's not a hot take. I think that's pretty well uh, shared as, as an opinion. A great man and a great leader. We owe a lot to Martin Luther King. And, and uh, he was always a personal hero of mine, so I took a lot of pleasure in seeing him you know, in, in the spotlight on this album in Pride and then also on MLK. This is a song that is beautiful to hear. And it, it also, I think it's perfect because it goes on just long enough, not too long. Yeah, and if it was one verse or one time through the through the song, that would be too that would be too little, and three times would be too much. Twice through it is just enough. It's just the right the right amount, and I don't think he tries too hard to put it to to put right. his own. You know, during the next phase of U two, I think Bono tries too hard to to put different vocal flourishes into into songs. You know, he tries too much. Right. But on this one, it's perfect. The, the tone is right. It is a perfect, perfect song. It's a, it's a, it's a eulogy. And it's, you know, if you're delivering a eulogy, I don't know. I've never delivered one and I won't be around if anybody delivers one when I assume room temperature. But, you know, <laughs> the, it's, it, you don't want it to drag out. Yeah. You don't want it to, to become this it loses its effect yeah. if you're having a, a – and this song is – it's a eulogy, point blank. That's, it's, it really is. It's a eulogy. You two have, have sung about death before, but I think this is the quintessential eulogy song in the YouTube catalog. And you're right. It's, they, they say it, and they just kind of leave it there as if they want, it, they want that to speak – here it is, and we're going to let it speak on its own. They they do a nice job, and I guess it's more in, about uh, with pride of um, on some of the live shows of clips of Martin Luther King delivering the "I Have a Dream" speech as a interlude into Pride, mm -hmm. uh, which really goes well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's the rat also the rattle and hum version of this song of the, of the movie, the movie. The movie of MLK. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm popping back and forth here. Uh, I've always been a fan of that. Mm. It's, um, you two can pull this stuff off without it being bombastic. Yeah. Or without it, without it being showy. Yeah. It's, it, they can be so earnest in delivering moments like this. Yeah. And I know other people will, other people that aren't into you two would disagree with that. But again, they're infidels and. Well, we, we don't care about that. But you're right, though. And I do think that when we get into the next phase of U2, I think that there's a, 
there is a line that they flirt with in terms of he does his earnestness is in overdrive, but not there yet. So interestingly enough, he never says the name Martin Luther King Jr. or never says the initials MLK. And I'm about to blow your mind. No song on the Unforgettable Fire album mentions the song title itself, except for one song. Pride. Pride. No other song mentions its own title. And that to me is one of those, whoa. Yeah, I'm probably late to that party. It's probably not something I'm discovering. But uh, anyway, MLK, a great ending track. Like you said, it's a, it's a eulogy. It is this choir-like, I mean, it's a single voice, but it is this heavenly. It's almost as if I can envision him delivering that eulogy at MLK's funeral. Right. It's like I can, I can envision him stepping up, not saying a word, singing the song, and quietly sitting down. Okay, that wraps up side two of The Unforgettable Fire and brings us to the end of, of the album. Uh, when we come back from the, the quick break here, we will do, as we always do, a rating of our favorite song or what we call the standout track. Each of us will choose a, uh, an underrated track. And then we will also select standout lyrics. Each of us making a choice on that. When we come back on Rock and Roll Doggies. Once again, you are listening to Rock and Roll Doggies. I'm Jason, and uh, this is Don here. We are recording this via Zoom. Now is the point in the show where we come to the, we give out our own choices for standout track, underrated track, and favorite lyric, and then we give our rating for the overall album. Most underrated track I have. This was kind of difficult to find an underrated track. I went with Elvis Presley in America. I, I don't think it's grossly underrated. I don't think it's a great song. I mean, I don't think it's a great, great song. But if I am ha- having to choose the most underrated, I would choose Elvis Presley in America, and mainly because I just love the last eight or ten lines. <laughs> yeah, that the eight or ten, eight or ten lines gives it the most underrated award in my book. That's amazing. And that's what you chose as well. I bet it is what I chose. Yep. Six months ago, I wouldn't have chosen it. One month ago, probably not, but somehow it has hit me here recently. And for all the things that you said, it is underrated to me. Uh, I will also mention as, as a strong contender here, the track Unforgettable Fire, title cut, because I think it is complex and, and musical and em- emotional in a way that uh, doesn't always get recognized. But to me, this track that is mumbling and buried and deep inside too, Elvis Presley in America. I think a lot of people have missed out on it because it is so hard to reach. Uh, it is at least it's very not very accessible. accessible it's thick. It's very thick. Yeah. It's anti-pop as they come. Oh, it is. And it lasts like six minutes. So, so yeah, that is also my underrated track. This is, um, this is silly to have to even name this, but the standout track on this album for me is bad. Uh, yeah, it's, there's not even a second place song here. We're an Irish band. We come from Dublin City, Ireland. Like all cities, it has its good and its bad. <laughs> there's a song called Bad. 
It's a musical journey. This song is so far ahead. And I'll say this, it's so far ahead of anything they've done to that point. Mm. Now, I wouldn't say it's so far ahead of every, anything they've ever done. I don't know, man. The other songs, the maybe, but, but... I think it was definitely emblematic of that, of that phase of them. I mean, it's right up there with, you know, it's, I don't know if I'm going to say it's better than the young U2 doing Gloria, you know, but it's definitely a more mature and more meaningful track to a lot more people and a more uh, important track, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, Gloria was, um, Boy in October were, were punk slash post-punk albums. This song here is post, post-punk, AOR prime, alternative prime, and it is very much in the forefront of alternative music now. Okay, but compare it to Gloria, it has no bass solo. I'm just going to leave that right there. Uh, well, I guess you got me there. <laughs> Come on, Smurf. I guess you got me there. All right. So that is obviously the, the standout track, one of the all-time standout tracks for this band. And best uh, lyrics. I've got several best lyrics. So I'm, I want to name, name a couple and you name a couple. Um, a Sort of Homecoming, the whole song is fantastic. To me. <laughs> is a lyric that I love the, the Unforgettable Fire song. The lyrics there, dug from the night, your eyes as black as coal. Man, that's just so good. And then the, the transition there, and if the mountains should crumble or disappear. And that, that's also great because of the, the, the musical change that happens then. But I mean, it's biblical. It is very biblical. You're right. It's, it's awesome. one of those. And by the way, a shout out to Bono's Bible. That's one of my favorite Twitter accounts. That, that account and then they follow us. They listen to the podcast. I love what they do. They they bring out it's the, good stuff. They bring out lyrics and tweet that along with a, a reference to scripture that that it comes from. So enjoying what they're doing. And and one more, I will say that uh, so deep inside a cold fire. Now that's unforgettable fire. I only have one best lyric, and it's taken from Elvis Presley in America. Don't you leave, don't leave out part of me that I can feel like I feel before. Like it hurt now and I see the floor if you pick me up bits and pieces on this floor. You know, that reminds me of a lot of the lyrics of the early 90s of the so-called grunge bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That reminds mm-hmm. me of something that, that Kirk might have, or Scott yeah. Weiland or somebody could have written. yeah. It has that nihilistic nine inch nails kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is powerful and my heart just aches on that. So I, I named a bunch of different lyrics, but I think my, and I'm cutting you off if you had any more or is that. No, I'm, no, I'm done. You've got the floor. I think my, my, my overall favorite lyric is in a sort of homecoming kind of sums up my whole feeling about the album and what, what it evokes in me is no spoken words, just a scream. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. No, and especially on the live version, when you look at the, the Wide Awake in America version of that, no spoken words, just a scream. Oh, man, the guts. Oh, so good. So we've come to what Jerry Springer would call our final thought. I think this is worth mentioning. As I looked at the album, it's sketches, and we've talked about that. My, my own expectation of artists a lot of times is kind of my need to be able to predict their next move. And we all thought 
or at least we didn't know, maybe it's going to be just like war or more like that. But I think it begins with the artists. And even if it originates in the cosmos or wherever the muse comes from, it begins with the artists themselves and pulling it out of, of themselves. You know, we can't control that. And I, I like being on the journey with them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm a consumer. And so huh, this album was a dichotomy for me, but it made me a better music fan or, or made me appreciate music more because I knew that this journey belongs to them and to me in equal parts. And, and, and I, I think you're absolutely right that this song, this album, particularly as a 16-year-old, it, it transitions you from viewing music as just uh, input-output. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about looking at music in a much more macro perspective. And, it, you know, this album was probably instrumental, no pun intended, in taking me into a lot of other genres in my late teens and early twenties, listening to people like Miles Davis and Bob Dylan and Robert Johnson and mm-hmm. um, a really more off mainstream artist mm-hmm. that, because I looked, I finally, be, I really began to see music more in the artistic sense than I did of, Oh, this sounds good. I'm going to interpret this. And this is, I'm going to make this song my own. It's kind of like I looked at this album from macro, almost like you would look at a piece of art. And then I use that to kind of parlay my musical taste and a lot of other genres that I'm not so sure I would have experienced in the same way had it not been for this album. I think that's probably true for a lot of people because we trusted you two as our own kind of band. That, oh, these are our guys. And if they're like, hey, these, these things are important. It's important to, to, to surprise our audience or to, um, to not do what's expected of us, but to follow the muse of our own creative instinct. And this is what we want to do now. And it might not be the thing that sells the most or is the most popular choice. That's part of it though. That's part of the integrity of being an artist, I guess. Being and, yourself. and this was a, this was a fun time to be, uh, a YouTube fan because I thought a lot of the band because I, you know, listened to boy in October and war up to that point. And I was excited to see if they could, to borrow an overused phrase that I hate, take it to the next level. But really, I mean, in, 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 in this context, that description works because they did, they took it up from being a punk band to being a, a real alternative darling at this point. Mm-hmm. They were they were the band of the eighties, according to Rolling Stone, before the Joshua Tree even came about. That's what this album it helped put them and solidify them into that alternative context. Yeah. And then of course the next album they have so yeah. much commercial success. Yeah. But it, it was fun to to latch onto a band while they're beginning to really take that ride up mm-hmm. up and to the right. Mm-hmm. And you're right. You you didn't know where they were going to go. Mm-hmm. And after the unforgettable fire, you're thinking, "Oh wow, what what's next?" <laughs> you know that this was the first album where I thought this band can, is taking twists and turns, and I don't know what's coming next. And there's a lot of enjoyment in that if you're following a band like we were. Yeah, and, and I think they gained a lot of credibility too artistically yes. because they didn't just do War Part Two. 
I don't know. Something about this album made it more serious or maybe not more serious, more artistic. I, I hate just trying to find the right word here. Yeah, more, more legitimate, more legitimate, more, uh, yeah, legitimate works. Yeah. Let's go legitimate. Okay. So before we rank, let's go through uh, what we've done so far. The album boy on a, on a 10.0 scale, the album Boy, I ranked at 8.1, and you ranked at 7.1. I thought you gave it a 7.2 upon further review. I don't think so. Okay. I went back and listened. Okay. All right. I'll trust you. Okay. The album October, I ranked at 6.4, and you ranked at – do you have these in front of you? Yes. Okay. What did you rank October? 6.7. The album War is a big is a big difference of opinion here. We both liked it, but I ranked it at a 9.0. And I gave it a 7.6. 7.6. The Unforgettable Fire, I'm going to rank at 8.9. <laughs> I was I've been wondering where you would put this. Yeah. And I went back and forth on nine point this is, this is I mean for three weeks. Is that a 9.0 or 8.9? And here's why it's not a nine. As opposed to an 8.9. It's an 8.9. It would have been a 9.0 equal one with tenth. war to one me. Tenth. One okay. tenth. One tenth. One more song. It, it doesn't have enough songs. Side two basically has three songs. MLK, I don't, I don't consider to be a fully real. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tag. It's a, it, it's a hymn that's the end of, uh, and Fourth of July is not a song. So it basically has three long songs. And, and I, I went back and forth on this a lot, and I thought, I love those three songs, but I feel like maybe they could have done another one. Okay. Knowing what the, and knowing what the B-sides are that came out of these sessions. Well, I was going to ask you that. So it, had, had yeah. they put three sunrises on instead of Fourth of July, you'd probably give it what? What would you give it? Probably 9.0. Because okay. I feel like I got shorted here. I got nine McNuggets and a 10-piece. Yeah, I, 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 can see, I can see why you would say that. I, I guess I think that there are enough strong songs on this album, and there's one song that's really strong, that propel this album. In other words, you could have put Miami on this album. <laughs> and, and, um, no, Bono, you couldn't. No. Bono singing an Irish drinking song. No. That's track, and no. I would have still given this album a high mark and what did you is, give it that is why i give it a nine a nine that's that's by far the highest rating for for you to give any album i mean i don't disagree with it and and i think you're right for all the reasons you said because of the greatness of the of the material that's there uh I mean, why didn't they, you know you wonder why they didn't i, I wouldn't have left ML, mlk off the album no, of course MLK not. Deserves I feel to be like you should have squeezed in the, the three sunrise or love comes tumbling. They're love comes tumbling track. would have been good instead of. But wonder, don't leave anything off. Put another song. Uh, on. drop drop Fourth of July. It's crap. Oh, Fourth of July doesn't need to be. I mean, it's it's nice. just you know it's just I don't know. I mean, you know, why, why, why do they put a sound check on an album? I, I, but I get it. It, it. it fits with the atmosphere of the album. It ties it in. It's it's like. This is a way to kind of enhance the grayness of the album. 
And in, but yeah. individually, it just does, there's just nothing there at all. And I also am never a glass half empty. I'm never a little bitch baby that's like, that's not enough songs for me. I, I never feel like anybody owes me anything. I just want to justify and say that's why I, that one-tenth was missing from it being a nine. And, and seriously, because I, it left me wanting more, especially during this last study of the album, past few weeks. There's no question that what's great is truly great. To me, it starts at the beginning, sort of homecoming, pride, unforgettable fire track, bad, and, and the, uh, the two other tracks on the side too. <laughs> Indian Summer Sky and, and Ellis Presley America. Great stuff. I just want one more song. I want, I want one more on that album. I give it an 8.9 and you gave it a nine. You know, that's the beauty of this is that opinions are, are great. Uh, it's the enjoyment of the music that counts. And I'm really enjoying going through this. Like I said, at this age now and, uh, and seeing it in a different way than ever before. I was curious. I mean, we talked about this on the last podcast. You were at a different place listening to war than I was. Mm-hmm. I wasn't internalizing war. Um, quite like you were, and then this album comes along, and I really, I e- e- even back then, I was heavily invested in this album, heavily invested in this. I was, I internalized it so much, and I was curious how you would rank it mm. to see if you internalized it. I did, maybe to, maybe to the degree that you did on War, and I think your rating of eight point nine probably speaks to the fact. That yes. you did that. And I didn't want to steal your thunder because I think you're right that it was more so of, uh, you know, this, it was really the first big change in your life. And so right. I think that what you were going through was a new thing. And it was really a continuation for me of my own, you know, kind of teenage angst. But I definitely remember having that feeling of being I'm at college with no friends from my past, no connection to my previous life, which I mean, it all much more dramatic at that age right. uh, than it really was. I mean, I was fine. I wasn't in danger in any, in any way or, you know, I had my needs being met, but I was lonely and I was wondering who I was and all those things. So I internalized a lot of it. And sure, I acted out the, the crazy, chaotic wire, all of the, all the bad twist and turn away feelings. I had all of those because of, you know, just being that age. But, you know, you're two years younger than me. So you were going through things uh, at a different, different timetable. I can't hear, and you've spoiled it for me. It's your fault. Twist and turn away. Because you said once that I can't hear that song now without thinking of twist. The Ni- you mean Nigel Twist? Yeah, it's Nigel Twist. So now, <laughs> now here we are in our early 50s, and I still can't listen to that song Without thinking of Nigel Twist. Nigel Twist, the drummer for The Alarm. I, I wonder, like, when they toured with you 2 at whatever phase that was, did, that was before The Unforgettable Fire, I guess. But, I mean, you uh, think maybe he could come yeah, out and sing that part. I'm sure he did. I, I, yes. Yeah, I, I would feel pretty certain of that. We got a Nigel Twist reference. That's awesome. Should we get <laughs> Nigel Twist on as a guest on this? Dude, also Hotshot, my cat. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's great. So that's great. I uh, I don't know what else to say. I feel like with these gigantic albums, we started, I think, with War and this one even bigger, more significant. And now we're about to hit the big boys. I mean, we're about to hit the, you know, 
the most significant period in U2's history, Joshua Tree and Octung Baby. So I feel a little bit intimidated, but this album intimidated me. Um, being able to analyze it, it, it intimidated me because it's so layered and um, it's so textured and, and it's so gray and, and murky that it was kind of hard to break down in a way. Uh, it, the only way to really break it down, and I probably didn't do much of it, was to be able to kind of look at it from a personal perspective. Yeah. As much as anything else, because you, it, there's just not enough hard material there for you to go, well, this is, he's saying this here, he's saying this here, and this is what he means here. And it's mm. writing so much different than anything he's done up to that point. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. That is it. That concludes side two. And uh, thank you buddy for logging on and listening to our thoughts on one of the most influential bands of the modern era. Be sure to follow us on social media at Rock and Roll Doggies on Instagram and on Twitter at at Roll Doggies for details about our next podcast and other juicy tidbits as we take a chronological journey through the discography of the Irish band U2. Until we connect again, good night, everybody. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a musical journey. <laughs> <laughs>